Inside Music Cast celebrates our 100th episode with Gino Vanelli. episode, we're glad to welcome a guest whose music we all know very well. Over the past three decades, Gino Vanelli has delivered albums such as Powerful People, Brother to Brother, Nightwalker, and Black Cars, not to mention a couple of international chart-topping hits like I Just Want to Stop and Living Inside Myself. The Montreal native continues to sell out venues worldwide and is writing new music in every spare moment, including a recent effort to produce a blues-based collection of songs. We're honored to welcome Gino Vanelli to Inside Music Cast to help us celebrate our 100th podcast episode. Hey, Gino, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Gino, also, we want to introduce you to uh, Scott Sheriff. He's our newest correspondent out of Nashville. That's right. It's, a, it's an honor to be a part of this interview. I've been a huge fan since, uh, well, we all know how long it's it's been since the uh, Brother to Brother record and before, so uh, yeah. it's really a pleasure to, to dive in and talk with you. Actually, before we do dive into the heart of the interview, Gino, we're we're concerned about a, a recent incident in Holland uh, with an inner in-ear monitor that uh, caused uh, some damage to your hearing. And you know, if you can tell us exactly what happened and tell us about the current status with your ears. Yeah. Well, what, what happened was I was uh, doing a tour, uh, seven or eight cities in, in Holland, and um, having a blast, literally. And then uh, towards the end of the tour, some crew member inadvertently unplugged some cables while I was trying out my earphones, and I mean, the blast was so loud, I, 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 I doubt if a cannon fire sounded like any louder than that, because, of course, wow. in-ears are right in your head. And so um, I got home a few days later after the tour, and uh, I just didn't feel right, and after a few days, which uh, what was odd, uh, just all these kind of crazy noises started happening in, in my brain. Oh, God. So, uh, you know, obviously I, I went uh, to many doctors, including uh, allopathic to, to the most esoteric you can think of. Mm-hmm. And I've been on a regimen, you know, of, of Chinese herbs and acupuncture and shiatsu and you name it. I've been doing it, osteo, you know, uh, and osteopathy too. It, I really got really informed, really, about, you know, how the hearing works. And, and uh, I mean, I really, really got... I got very well instructed, you know, and, and not only how to protect your ears, but, you know, how it really, really works, especially for musicians. Mm-hmm. I would really suggest that uh, when people try out their uh, their earphones and all that, there is an absolute law that nobody 
does anything without you know people who have ear in ear monitors um, being forewarned. Yeah. But you know it, it is getting better. I mean, it was very hellish a couple of months ago. Um, but I mean, I'm about uh, three quarters of the way there. So I mean, the days are much better. In fact, so much better I could be in the studio now and just find a demo. Are you suffering? What was odd about it is because uh, I really was very concerned about um, any hearing loss, Uh, but I got my ears tested and all that, and it's almost 100%. Wow. Very happy about that. So it was just a freak accident, you know, that just um, caused some, I guess, temporary damage, but I couldn't fly, that's for sure. Yeah. An odd thing that happens when, when you have hearing damage, or not really hearing damage, but trauma, is that you can't fly because of the, yeah, the, uh, the pressure. altitude pressure, which completely drives you mad. <laughs> so I've been trapped. <laughs> I, I was supposed to do a tour in, in, in Europe again with a big band, and in, uh, in Scandinavia uh, with a new jazz trio that I put together. Mm-hmm. And uh, some great guys, and I had to cancel that, which was really Oh, that's too bad. But that's the way it goes. So I'm I'm in the studio now, and I'm making up for a lot of time. Um, I'm on my second or third demo for the new uh, blues album. Well, good, good. Well, on behalf of our listeners, uh, welcome back. We pray for uh, further healing in your in your ear, and uh, you know. Well, it's very nice of you to say that. So. Um but anyway, let, let, let's move on into the interview. We're glad glad you're back, and we're glad that you're with us. Um, good. You know, Gino, let, let's start uh, with some with some questions uh, w- w- for our listeners. Um, we'd like to know a little bit about about your background. You know, your dad, Russ, was he's a he was a musician himself, and uh, well, he, he was a singer. You know, big band singer. Okay, and, uh, he was scheduled to go out and sing with Maynard Ferguson, I mm-hmm. believe, in the early fifties. You know, I, I don't know. My my dad really never led on as to why he never really took that leap, that leap in the dark. And um, yeah, you know, he had a lot going for him. Um, certainly had great ears and a great voice. And um, you know, he was still a young guy and he could still learn a lot. But I don't know. My father was a boxer. You know, when he was a young man. Really. You know, I think somehow he got grilled into him that by the time you're thirty years old, your life is over. And that used to be the mantra for most fighters, you know, in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And I think somehow it rubbed off on his idea of what his dreams, you know, how tentative, his, uh, tenable his dreams were. That's interesting. You also have uh, two brothers, Joe and Ross, and you know, they're also musicians but have been very instrumental in, in your career, in fact, even to this day. Yes, my brother Ross handles uh, all the business and management, and uh, he's, we're very tight. Yeah. And of course, Joe is still in LA doing uh, producing. I think he just finished producing another a record for Burton Cummings. Oh, very cool! Yeah, you know, it's you know, your voice is, you know, made such an impression worldwide. With um, you know, but um, you know, we'll bet that the general public doesn't really know that that you really are a very accomplished drummer too. Tell us a little bit about uh, you picking up the drumsticks. Well, I, I was, uh, you know, I think I was six or seven years old when I. I remember going to some pharmacy or drugstore in Montreal, and I saw this, you know, set of bongos. And you know, a set of bongos for me was like a scratching post. You know, I had to get to it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took it off the top shelf and started playing. And the drug, the, the druggist or pharmacist said, "Well, to my father, he says if you don't buy him these bongos, I will." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got my first pair of bongos, and um, 
And a couple of years later, I decided that I really wanted to play the traps when I, I saw Buddy Rich and uh, Gene Krupa came to town and I met him and I heard him live and I said, that's for me. And then I I was a real big fan of Sam Woodyard and Elvin Jones and oh, yeah. Max Roach and all those guys. Mm-hmm. And every time they came to town, I made sure I went to see them. Uh-huh. And I loved Sonny Payne's drumming, you know, with, with uh, Count Basie and all. So, big fan, you know. And then when Funk came along, you know, um, Bernard, Bernard Purdy was my hero. And, um, wow. So uh, I took lessons for many years and was very, very serious at becoming, you know, wanting to become a great drummer. And then I just somehow, by the time I was 14 or 15, I went to the piano one day and I said, this looks interesting. And I started playing a little bit and then I took some lessons and I continued taking lessons well into my 20s, 30s, and 40s. And um, I just fell in love with the composition end of it. Your music education started at a, at a pretty early age uh, when you were not only studying drums but also music theory. I mean, how old were you when you dove into theory? Well, uh, you know, theory was ma- mandatory in school, so we, we had some basis, you know, for staff and treble and bass class and all. But um, drum theory gave me really good percussion, you know, um, sense, um, beat sense. And then um, I had a series of private teachers uh, teach me piano and uh, a few private teachers teach me you know, guitar and how that worked and and then as I as I progressed along as I uh, moved to New York late teens and moved to Los Angeles in the early 20s uh, I just had to continue picking up my education on the road because I was so bent on, on uh, being a singer a, a songwriter that um, I just kind of um, had always a tutor with me wherever I went, whether it was a vocal coach or a, um, a piano teacher or a theory teacher. Um, at one point, I, I studied a little bass, too. I wanted to hmm. understand the upright a little bit better. So, I mean, it's just been an ongoing thing. And I just, I spent a year in McGill, but I, I just couldn't stay there. I just, yeah. a little bit was uh, perhaps some hubris on my... Uh, my part because I mean every time the teacher would come up with some things to you know dissect and uh, to to uh, to write out or to copy or mimic or anything like it was just too simplistic for me and uh, as I wrote once uh, I think if you would have given us the Hungarian dances by Bertog you know <laughs> Bela Bertog I, I Bartok I think it would have been would have set me down pretty good. Uh-huh. <laughs> But because it was rather simplistic, you know, and, and doing pop stuff and all that, I just thought it was a waste of my time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gino, you were signed by a record company at the age of 16. Tell, tell us something about that memory and uh, your collaboration with your brothers back then. I mean, what age were they at the time, and, and how were you guys working together back then? Especially, it's, you know, Joe's played such an important part in your career. How did you guys share duties back then? Uh, it was an odd thing getting a record deal with RCA Victor in Montreal. I just got out of high school, and um, I was bent on getting a record deal. And that's when I was, you know, entered into McGill, and then I was going there during the day, but writing and um, composing uh, at night. And um, I was I was hell-bent on getting a record deal, so I, I managed to get myself an, an audition with RCA Victor, and I just went in one day and uh, played all the parts, so most of the parts, and... Uh, they were quite taken aback by this, you know, I think just turned 17 and uh, gave me a record deal for, for doing a few singles. And I had a, you know, a 
small little success um, with the first single, and then I, I, I realized that that was the thing I wanted to do in my life, but I really needed to go to New York because I, I the Montreal scene or the Canadian scene in, in 1970 was, was uh, rather amateur. Hmm. Most, most Canadian artists didn't record in Canada, and if they did, they were self-contained and had their own engineers and equipment and producers. Uh, the whole studio concept in Canada didn't really come of age till the um, mid-'80s with, with Sullivan and, and, and Brian Adams and some of the other artists. Uh, so in the beginning, you know, artists have to go out to make a, a good record. Yeah. So I, I traveled to New York, and um, I, I visited many record companies, and I had my near brushes with, uh, in fact, Capital wanted to sign me. I remember when I was 19 years old, but I thought the budget was too too small, which was really stupid of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, no one, no one stays in budget, so I was being way too Christian about it. <laughs> 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 and how how old was Joe at the time? Where you guys had started working together, even on the on the pop stuff. At this well, we point? were uh, rehearsing, and we had various groups together since we were kids. Since we uh, I was thirteen, I had a group called the Jacksonville Five, and we had it, formed it and reformed it. Then I joined a band called the Soulmates, and Joe joined the band a little bit playing organ. And then uh, we had a band called Gino Vanelli and Good Friends in Montreal, and saved up a bunch of money, and we both went to Los Angeles, and that's when I got my record deal with A&M Records. Very neat. Uh, it was 1972, the end of 72 or 73. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Montreal, and, um, you know, growing up there, and uh, it's a sort of artsy town. Uh, it's, 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 it's very interesting. What, what's the vibe there growing up? And, you know, I, we always hate to ask this question, but we love to know what you were listening to back then. Um, that, what's the first question about Montreal? Yeah, but, uh, explain a little bit about the, the vibe of Montreal. What kind of a town was it? Very, very interesting. I mean, it still remains that way, but a little bit, a little bit more, um, you know, the melting pot uh-huh. uh, as, as time goes on. I mean, there's, there's a process of watering down, which is, some people could say boundaries break down, but in, in a sense, it, it is a bit of a watering down when people lose their local flavor. Yeah. But in uh, in nineteen in the sixties, growing up there, fifties and sixties, it was quite a unique place because, of course, French being the predominant language, mm-hmm. and um, the, the French were not into English rock, and by that I mean they were not even into um, the whole San Francisco scene, Doors, um, yeah. Starship, and all that. It, it was. Sort of there, but not really. The French were really into dance because they really couldn't understand most of the lyrics, of course, you know, which was a lot of these uh, groups were heavily lyrically driven. Yeah. Um, so James Brown and Wilson Pickett and Patti LaBelle and uh, Curtis, um, Curtis Mayfield and um, uh, Marvin Gaye and uh, King Curtis and some, some you know, uh, how many R&B groups were huge in Montreal when they were sort of popular in the rest of Canada, but just mammoth in Montreal. I remember in Montreal, the James Brown in 1968 could fill uh, 18,000 feet. And, and the rest of Canada, he was doing fine, but not, not like Montreal. So Montreal had dance halls, discotheques, um, 
And so, uh, for me, growing up, I really got a good taste of R&B and really the, the black influence of music in that. Um, I, I love that part of it. And also Montreal's a heavy jazz town. A club called Casaloma where Dan Canton and Camp Basie and Duke Ellington, uh, Artie Shaw, um, Buddy Rich, uh, sure. I mean, group after group yeah. would come and play. And I used to play in house band there. I got to see a lot of those groups. Mm-hmm. Are you are you, Fran- are you fluent in French, Gino? Pretty fluent. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you ever record I, in French? I did. Uh, I did uh, sang a song called uh, Jalika, which is uh, a song on the Canto album, which is a sort of a progressive, um, a, a French jazzy classical song. Yeah. Uh, Gino, you, when your music came out, to me it was it was so groundbreaking. In the, in you know the chord structures you were using, and the you know there wasn't a tension in those chords that was lower than a ninth. It was really rich stuff. What were you listening to when you were young to give you the ideas to infuse that into into the rock music, which never really, to my estimation, was happening until that point. You really kind of were a pioneer in, in getting that sound out there. Well, it, it really was the uh, the jazz influence. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I was totally into Miles and, and Coltrane and. And I, I loved Bill Evans, and Bill Evans was, you know, really, really precise with his harmonies and very rich with his modulations and harmonies, and that was a real strong influence, you know, for me. I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, your vocals, and I wondered if you had classic, you know, classic vocal training. How did you manage to keep your voice in such great shape over the years? Well, uh, that, that is part of the training. I mean, the, the, the training is... Uh, Just to continue, right? Yeah, it's to continue, and I, I mean, I've, I've seen a vocal coach, I mean, I've been seeing a vocal coach even in the last 10 years here, a really good one here in Portland, and uh, help me, you know, because every, every, you know, so years, maybe seven or eight years, you know, the voice goes through changes, and you have to know how to move with the change, and if you're singing the same way you sang when you're 18, you're probably going to hurt your voice. Um, you're singing from a different place, of course, as you get older, you should be able to keep your range it should get thicker and should get richer. Mm-hmm. And that's indeed what happened to my voice. Mm-hmm. That my range is the same. I still uh, can hit, you know, high A's, which is just about a tenor range. Um, but uh, it, I, I have a full three octaves you know, at my disposal, really, you know, to sing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, I got another octave in the last 15, 20 years mm-hmm. in the bottom. So I really kept up the high octaves, uh, the high range, and really added to the bottom. When I was 22, I, I couldn't sing, you know, those low notes. And there's a general, uh, was a general thinner sound to my voice, which is because of age. And I'm very grateful that you know, my voice is held up, but it, it's taken some work and um, a little bit of discipline. Mm-hmm. Hey, Gino, we've got a, a question from a listener. We opened up, uh, we, we mentioned uh, on Facebook that we we're going to be interviewing you, and uh, we had a bunch of people jump in and, and wanted to uh, ask their own questions. And this is from uh, Liza Hallam Whittingham from Sweden. And she has a question about uh, your lyrics. And she says, in the process of writing a song, how do the lyrics evolve? Such, you know, she said, such poetic lyrics, so beautifully united with exquisite harmonies to perfection. She said, uh, she goes, from where does it all flow? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, I shake my head every time I start. I say, where was I? You know, what am I doing? Yeah. Um, I think it's, um, I see it right above my head. 
it's almost like a tablet that that is uh, is already written, and I'm trying to see it clearly. Mm-hmm. And I, every time I take a peek, I get another little um, glimpse of a line, and and I know it when I keep writing it, and I it's not right. I keep looking up. I said, no, it's not the way it's etched. And and then finally, when I after I do get it right, I said that's what it was, and that's that mm-hmm. was what I was trying to bring down from that place. Yeah. So it, it's it's not so much. Um, I mean, there is a process to it. Sure. And, an inch by inch process, and sometimes a little faster than other times. Um, but it's a process of really trying to hear, trying to listen to what you want to say. Mm-hmm. For me, I can't even begin to write a song if there isn't um, like a, a theme uh, to, to to drive me there, because it's, it's almost like the think of the gym is so heavy after all these years, I got to know that it's going to be an interesting fight. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I, I, I start, I either pick up the acoustic or the piano, and I, I love to doodle, and I'm always doodling, and, and coming up with riffs and chords and new progressions. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, I land on something, and I think, you know, I've always wanted to write a song about this. Mm-hmm. And then I just take some notes, and um, I write a little note to myself. The first verse will be about this, second verse, of course, and here's where the title should be, and I let it hang, and then then I get to it, and I just sort of inch away and etch away at it. Very cool. Uh, Gino, following your career, it seems like uh, there was definitely a progression uh, to what was going on with your records. If I could go back a little bit to, to Storm at Sunup, it seems like you started to experiment a little bit with some longer form songs. Uh, where was I, where am I? Yeah, Where Am I Going was a bit of a longer song, and then we had the War Suite on the gist of the Gemini, kind of all culminating with the four movements of Popper in Paradise with the live orchestra. I wondered kind of what precipitated your venture into that long-form songwriting, and also on the flip side, was there kind of was there pressure from the record company kind of to part back and, and maybe write shorter songs? <laughs> yeah, I'll answer the second one first. I remember when we handed <laughs> in um, Popper in Paradise, you know, the... Uh, the time Bill Friesen was the head of A&M Records, he said, you just gave me half an album. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> That's a matter of opinion, I said. Um, so, you know, I, I knew it, it could hurt me a little bit uh, commercially, you know, to, to delve into long-form songs. But I wanted to uh, come up with a... Um, you know, when Underground Radio came out in 1970, early, late 60s, uh, People were given free license to to go a little longer, like the first, you know, uh, I think Light My Fire is, what, six minutes or seven minutes? Yeah, right. So there was a little bit of a a stylistic uh, thing that happened, you know, in in the late 60s, even with MacArthur Park, that that certain artists would take it upon themselves to to demand a little more attention from the audience. But then by the time I started writing, I, I was so much a fan of classical music you know, uh, that I I wanted to actually take what people had done in classical music, like the French Impressionists and all, but do it vocally. So you can't do it. I mean, it's a whole different mindset to do it instrumentally as it is to do it vocally. Because, you know, you can get into all these technical things, um, 
voicings and, and little riffs on the piano and these little, if you're a great piano player, you use, you know, your full piano, the, the extent of your skill to come up with uh, neat little cadenzas and all that, you know, like Gershwin did and all. And it really works. And you, you tie together themes and it, it, it comes a cohesive, becomes a cohesive piece. But vocally, you can't do, unless you do these, you know, acrobatic things. And I, I wasn't interested in doing acrobats, you know. I wanted to write songs that had messages, themes uh, that were a long form of the short form and maybe perhaps uh, an interlude or whatever and then soloing and some, a conversation with the band or orchestra which would be sort of a, you know, a volleying between the vocal and, and an instrument. So I really wanted to come up with my own form of, of an aria of some kind. And it, 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 the, the first time or the first try at it was Powerful people, and then where am I going? And so on and so on, and then parts of it just, uh, just with Gemini, and um, here and there, you know, with brother to brother was another long form, yeah, uh, song, and there, there's there have been a few others, uh, and on the Canto album there are at least three or four, like summers of, uh, I should say, last days of summer, I believe it's a six or seven minute song, and it's really a vocal piece about growing up and my father. And it's a classical piece. And I, I was very happy to delve into um, a classic style, but non-instrumental. Primarily vocally driven, lyrically driven, and with enhancement from soloists and things like that. Yeah, I know that the third movement, the, the band really cooks on Pauper and Paradise. Yeah, I still really go do. back to that. That is a really, that's an amazing moment of fusion there. It's really great stuff. Hey, uh, Gino, I want to ask you, right around this time, you know, even up to Brother to Brother, you know, you were using um, a lot of synth bass along with uh, electric bass on some of the tracks. And and I remember, in, in fact, um, the track um, uh, The Wheels of Life, um, that was one neat example of your blending of the synth and the electric bass. You know, at what time or what point did you actually pick up that technique, which was being done a lot, of mixing, of mixing uh, both types of uh, sounds? Well, that was a bit of an accident because Leon Gear had a new rig that Oberheim had made him. Yeah. And he was able to trigger an Oberheim with his uh, Fender Precision bass. Or really? Jazz bass, I can't remember wow. exactly. And so it, it was, I think, a MIDI trigger. And that those were the really the instant stages of MIDI. He was using a MIDI trigger to uh, yeah. to spark out the, the Oberheim. Yeah, and this is 1977. That's amazing. So the, the, he was one of the first to do that. And when I heard that, I said, that that's something I really want to use. And we used it in mm-hmm. the field of life. We used it in Brother to Brother in, in the middle section. Yeah. And it was his, his rig that did that. And of course, uh, people started you know delving into that in, in later years. But Leon Gear was the first guy who, who had that rig. That's really, really interesting. That sort of blows me away a little bit because that was the real foundation of when MIDI was barely, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't even in the forefront yet. It had not really... No, I know. And not only was MIDI, um, MIDI triggering not really popular yet, right. um, most of all our overdubs were done with a monophonic synthesizer. That's which amazing. Meant we have to do every note by hand and double it and and, and do yeah. it in real time. Yeah, yeah. The first and, trigger. Uh, go ahead. When we uh, met with the core, the people at Korg, they they wanted to know how we captured a lot of that stuff because we used their instrument, and um, we showed them how, and they they modeled um, very expensive synth after what we had done, 
in the powerful people in the storm at sunup. And um, it worked pretty well. It had eight voices, I think eight double voices to have 16 wow. voices. And, uh, <laughs> but the, what nobody figured out was the fact that the act of playing each note, the imperfection, the changing of tuning, the changing of vibrato, right. the changing of slightly waveform attack, of, uh, a few other things, chorusing, um, that's what gave Storm and Son an interesting string sound for, uh, for synthesizers. Yeah. Whereas when it, they had a, a polyphonic synthesizer where you could do it all by hand, uh, all, all in one pass, we used that on Brother to Brother, and I didn't want to accentuate it too much. So you see in Brother to Brother, it's less of an orchestral and more of a... Um, on the rhythm section drawn, driven uh, records. Mm-hmm. And um, simply because I didn't think the synths had the depth uh, that they had um, in the earlier years. And I, 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 I thought Mark Cranny and, and Carlos Rios were so good that I didn't want to really yeah. over-orchestrate it. I wanted it to be more uh, rhythm section driven. Right, right, yeah. And we've got another uh, question from a correspondent. This is from Kim Riley down in Boca Raton, Florida. And she, she has an interesting question. She said, tell us the story about how you uh, came to get on Soul Train <laughs> and that song that got you on the show, which was People Gotta Move. And I, I think you were like one of only – you might have been the first or second uh, – I guess what's politically correct, a non-African American performer. No, I was the first white guy. First white guy. <laughs> that's the way to say it. Thank you for sh- thanks for going and cutting right to it, Gina. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah come on. <laughs> it is what it is, man. <laughs> yeah, and and of course, I think at the time I asked that question to uh, Don Cornelius. You know, rest in peace. You know, I, right. I still don't know why he off himself. I, I must have been terrible. I I need to read about it. You know. And I do think about it one more time, uh, a few times here and there. And he was very, very nice guy. And he gave me a call and asked me if I wanted to do the show. And I said, geez, Don, I said, you know, I'm a white guy. You know, wh- why do you want me to do the show? And he, he said, well, he said, I don't think you're white. I consider you beige. <laughs> 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 so it was kind of a bridge. And, and um, I said, well, I want to do something different, not just play the record. I said, I'd like to kind of do a, a live version of this. That possible? And he says, anything you want to do. So he was really, really um, courteous and very giving. And so we went on, and I was pretty nervous, but um, I, I was very happy about it. And it really uh, was was sparked by doing a tour with Stevie Wonder. It was a short tour, but a very successful tour for me. And um, what was very interesting about it is that in those days, you would never see. Uh, a black audience go to, uh, you know, white concerts or yeah. white rock and roll or whatever yeah. it was. And, and they, you know, I'm sure most black audiences felt uncomfortable. When I was asked to do the Stevie Wonder tour, I didn't know if I would get killed because uh, Shaka Khan, you know, had canceled. And so I was replacing Shaka Khan. And um, I... Stevie asked me outright because I met him in a hotel. When I heard him singing one of my songs, I kind of went up to him and, and his brother, and, and we started talking, and he said he was a fan, and he asked me then and there if I wanted to do some concerts with him. And of course. And, but I was nervous about it, and uh, I, I thought it was really a testimony to the time that 
black audiences are very open to any kind of music, any kind of person, if it hits the spot. Because once we started kind of just grooving on stage and do what we did, the audience just was with me all the way. And um, that's why I got the shot on Soul Train. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, all my records hit the R&B charts, you know, all through the 70s. So it was a different era, and for me it was a good era, you know, as far as crossover, you know. And uh, there were many, many um, black people used to come to, to uh, the concerts in sure. those days. And for me it was a lot of fun, because I knew most of them knew what they were talking about. Yeah, listening. And uh, it, it was uh, nice to see um, such a broad-based audience. Yeah. But in the beginning, what was very strange, though, talk about it, a little bit incorrect, or politically incorrect, was in the beginning, I think the first club tour I did, after uh, Powerful People, the first three months after, the audience was almost 100% gay. And, um, I mean, it was, it was kind of fine, but uh, I think it was a mistaken identity, you know? I see. Okay. <laughs> um, but that was, I went through some various stages of different kinds of audiences, you know, but the first three months release after Powerful People was a very, very gay audience, and, um, you know, it made, made life very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Brother to Brother went platinum, and, uh, yeah. you know, how did you feel at that time? I mean, you had hit Jackpot, and uh, you had a Grammy nomination. I mean, do you even remember the night? Uh, were you there at the Grammys? Yeah, I was there, but, you see, that wasn't that important to me, because uh-huh. what was important to me was... Um, it was the bigger picture. Yeah. It, it was accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish, you know, artistically. And I wanted to master my craft because I still didn't feel, feel like I'd mastered the things I wanted to master. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew there would be a great pressure put on me Yeah. Uh, after having the success of, of, uh, of Brothers and Brothers. Mm-hmm. And I, I feared it a little bit. And that pressure came with, with Nightwalker and I... Succeeded. It wasn't quite as big, but it was still a big album and a very big single. But you know, you know, artists kind of paint themselves into a corner many times, and and it's you know, all of a sudden you have big success, and and um, some dough comes your way, and you, you you throw it around a little bit, and you you buy your your, your friends a house, or your parents a house, or your family, and then you buy yourself another house, and you do things and. Suddenly, you find that you're a satellite, you know, of, of your own making. Yeah. And um, I found that out really, really quickly, and I didn't want to be that. It's one of the reasons why I left Los Angeles. Yeah. Because I, I really was serious about continue, continuing to develop. Right. You know, as an artist. Uh, Gina, we were talking about brother to brother. Uh, one of the things that really jumps out about that record to me is the amazing guitar work of Carlos Rios. And uh, I want to ask a two-part question. How did First of all, how did you come in contact with Carlos? And also, his solos are all so melodic and memorable. There's not any wasted lick. There's no moment that he's just kind of throwing away. It just seems like everything is so intentional and dances around the changes so wonderfully. Is that all Carlos, or is that something that you and Joe do in the studio to kind of sculpt him as he's playing? Because... Every solo on that record is, you can sing along with it. I mean, it's so memorable. Fantastic stuff. Well, first of all, I met Carlos. Uh, he was a young guy. He was 18 or 19 years old, and he was recommended, I believe, by someone who used to work at A&M called Mitchell Delavie. And um, 
Carlos came to my house. I lived in Newbury Park, which was in Ventura County at the time. And he just bought his little amp, and he just auditioned for me. And I said, yeah, I want you on this record. And I, I thought, I auditioned a few people, and he was by far the most melodic, you know, conscientious, sensitive, but he had that raucousness about him, too. And then when we came, when came time to do his solos, first of all, we, we rehearsed in Joe's Garage, for brother to brother, so we really put the band together. It wasn't uh, just a few rehearsals and going to the studio and see if it can work out. We worked out ten, fifteen songs and picked the best uh, in the garage for at least um, six weeks. Wow! So we really hammered. You know, same thing we did with with uh, Matt Walker, by the way. And um, so Carlos got to really paint pictures of his solos. And we came to when he came to the studio, we had an idea because. During the, the rehearsal, he would keep taking solos. But I didn't realize Carlos' technique was basically he was fishing for what was working, and he would keep whatever worked, and he'd keep that bar or that line. Mm-hmm. And I realized that when he came to the studio, he had taken his best moments and strung them together. And in fact, so much so that his solos were written out. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. So, I mean, we had Joe and I had some comments to make, you know, about a few thoughts here and there. But mainly, I have to say, it was it was it was Carlos' little um, work of genius there. It's impressive. Yeah, fantastic <laughs> stuff. Really good. You know, after the release of Nightwalker, uh, you were about to release your second album for Arista entitled Twisted Heart. And I think there was even a single released uh, called The Longer You Wait and and Bandito. And as far as I know, also there was a catalog number for this LP, but apparently the the album was never released. Um, Can you tell the story behind this and will the album ever see the light of day? I doubt it. Um, You know... (laughs) What's it? Charlton Hedger said over my dead stand, or what is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, from my dead hand or something? Um, you know, life is never simply dark or simply light. It, there's always a bit of dark and a light, and light and a dark. Yeah. Uh, at that moment in time, I wanted to, I wanted to go into a direction of classical ballads, like Put the Weight on My Shoulders. And I had written a few songs, and there, that's where I really wanted to go. But I, I knew I was becoming a better and better singer, and I really wanted to stretch out my voice. Mm-hmm. But at the time, uh, management, I, I think Joe, too, really wanted, he thought that, that I should try to capture the market that was happening at the time. And that was the early 80s, Bruce Springsteen was very big, and so Joe's idea was, why don't you try to make some musical rock and roll? Really try to use your sensibility to it, but, you know, get a little heavier, and not so much R&B, but more rock out. And I started experimenting with it, and I liked it, and I worked. It worked, and um, I always have a good time with whatever I'm doing. And, of course, the record company hated it, and... We got into this beef and this battle, and it got really complex. And it, it, it's such a mess because I'm doing something that I, I kind of like, and they don't want it. And then someone on my side says, "Well, we got to do this." It, it's just uh, too too many cooks. Yeah, yeah. And and that's uh, my advice to a lot of artists out there. If, if this, 
uh, any artist will be listening to this, is that it's very, very important. If you're wrong, you're wrong. But you'll never know you're wrong if you keep just having everybody futz with the soup. And so you have to have a vision. In the beginning, when I did Powerful People and all those albums, mm -hmm. including Brother's Brother and all, really, uh, I had a vision of what I wanted to accomplish right. musically. And then that's what I feared the most when I had success, that those visions wouldn't come to me and that I'd be pushed by, well, I should be doing this to capture a market or to stay popular or to, you know, stay as a top ten selling artist. And that's the wrong thing an artist should be doing. And um, so there was a little bit of that that was my fault. And then there was obviously the, the record companies totally out of line, and they really messed with my head. And, wow. And uh, it, it, was, it was something that should never be done to artists. You either say to the artist, this is good, I accept it, I release it, or let's negotiate you getting off the label. You don't, you don't fool around with lies. The years are precious. Right. And so I, they are totally uh, uh, to blame for, for that part of it. Mm -hmm. But I'm not without culpability, too. Yeah. So um, that's my strongest advice, is that you and make sure that the vision is clear before you really proceed, mm -hmm. because it's, it's a long haul and a lot of money and a lot of, if it's not money, it's time, which, which time is a lot of money. So I, I would suggest, you know, that artists that are really bent on their, on their personalities and on their, on their vision, let it be affected. But let it be affected privately. Yeah. In other words, build it up by listening, by by mixing and matching, and by experimenting and all those things. But once you say that's it, that's what I want to do. That's a very important, you know, thrust um, that you have. Mm -hmm. And when you have that, that's what I want to do moment. And then someone convinces you because this could maybe sell more, this could be more popular, or uh, unless the idea is. Uh, you catch his fire with you and you go, my God, you're right, it's better. I've, I've been down that road too, but rarely. And I, I think that's what an artist really needs to continue doing is to, to keep hunting for his vision and once he finds his vision, to stick to it. Another interesting project that comes to light um, is it's uh, it's actually a... Um it's it's one with a, a Danish duo called Kudasai in 1990. Yeah. And how did that happen? How did you hook up with a, a Danish duo? They were fans, and they they wanted my brother and I to produce them. And mm -hmm. They had good cuts on that album. Yeah, because you seem to have a really special bond with the Netherlands. Ex explain that bond. Well, they're from actually uh, Sweden. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, from Copenhagen. Okay. Um, Netherlands for me came came later in '06 or '07. Uh, I moved there for a couple of years and uh, developed relationships with musicians and, you know, various people in the business. And um, I needed to do it. I just needed... I was, I was fishing for a vision. And uh, that's how come I got uh, a vision to record uh, good things. And I liked that album very much. And um, I recorded it with many uh, Dutch musicians and some, some, some cuts recorded with my, my Portland band. But uh, some of my best songs. You know, um, and only um, very few people know it, but that's fine with me. Yeah. 
Mark Craney and Graham Lear were very innovative drummers, but on, on songs like Appaloosa, um, did you give them their space to innovate, or, or did you write those elaborate rhythm parts and patterns yourself? Uh, I, I I was a kind of stickler with that kind of stuff. You <laughs> know, um, I would always, I would listen and listen closely, and I would say, there, that, that's where it needs to be. And, and uh, then, of course, I always allowed some latitude, but for me, latitude was... It was different for most artists. I say no. I want more. <laughs> yeah. You know, you you got to push push it. Sure. Push the envelope. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember auditioning a few great studio drummers that were I won't tell you their names, but they were the most popular studio drummers in Los Angeles. And um, when I heard Vinny, I said, No, I want to work with Vinny because he can push the threshold. Yeah. Um, and yep. that more the kind of you know band leader I was. That when an art, when a drummer like Mark or Graham or, or Vinny weren't actually living up to their genius, I I would say no. You, 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 it's just that, that's too dull. That's too plain or too mm-hmm. simple. Or you can do more. You can you can add so much more to this bar with doing a lot more of an integrated you know fill here. Da 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 da. I was a big stickler for that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, we got another listener, uh, Jason Knuckles from uh, Northern California, and he wanted to ask you about your relationship with the late, great Mark Craney. It was a great relationship. Uh-huh. Uh, Mark Craney, uh, when I first heard Mark, I, I, he was one of the unique, one-of-a-kind drummers, you know, in, in, in mid to late 70s. And those kind of drummers were hard to find in those days because he seemed to have uh, a solid groove, and the ability to do practically anything on the drum. So, um, you know, he was just my kind of guy. You know. And then he got sick, and, and it was much harder to work uh, with Mark, and he would have off days, and, and, and it was really difficult for him. And that's why I recorded with Vinny in mm-hmm. the early 80s. Actually, I'm curious about your current drummer, uh, Reinhard Meltz, and, and how you... Oh, Ryan's fantastic. Yeah. How did you guys uh, come across each other? How did you hook up? I just went to see him in a club here uh, at the Blue Monk, and uh, I, he's a really unique guy. I mean, he brings a sort of Afro-Cuban you know, sensibility to his funk and jazz, and um, so his licks are never really... Although he can do that. Yeah. He's always yeah. more of a kind of a... You know, uh, a, a coffee kind of uh, fill or a timbale fill where it's. He's really got this syncopated kind of hmm. feel. Yeah. And uh, of course, he has all the other stuff too time, sensibility, sound on the drums. When you, you mean to watch him, it's like just to watch this, this per, these perfect pistons, you know, working in, in perfect order. Rick and I have always said that. Uh that if a song is great, you know, you can actually perform it in almost any style, in any genre, any rhythm, because a good song is a good song. You know, for an example, you know, Sting reinvents himself over and over. And a lot of artists these days are restructuring the songs for different markets and that type of thing. Do you believe that theory that a good song should be or can be remolded or not really? Well, I mean, I re-recorded a few songs, mm-hmm. you know, like Down With Love, I re-recorded with Rachel Z. Yeah. On a solo album, and um, yeah, if the song is, is a good song, and you have a you have a another inspiration, but if it's just for marketing and all that, I I, I don't know. I mean, I that's not my bent, you know. Uh, 
I, I, if you hear the song in a different way after 10 years, then it, it, it could be it could bring yeah. people pleasure. Yes, exactly. Then, then, then well, by all means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gino, in the mid-'80s, uh, it kind of marked a transition from R&B to a more pop-oriented songs uh, that that were on Black Cars, and Black Cars was almost like a uh, a departure for you from a more acoustic, as far as the rhythm section goes anyway, to a more electronic-type rhythm section. How did that uh, did that happen, and was it somehow the record company wanting you to, to move more in that direction, or just something you wanted to experiment more in, into, into those type of tones and sounds? Well, you know, Black Cars was... Uh, a bit of a unique album, you know, for me because it, I didn't record with a with a band. I played a little drums myself. Joe and I like programmed a lot of the records, so it was it was a different kind of approach at recording, a, a little more simplistic, you know, musically. Um, and I, I just wanted to make a different kind of record because I realized, um, well, that was the time when I was having really a lot of problems with. with with Arista, and I couldn't get out of the record deal. Uh, and uh, I remember RCA wanted to sign me, and Arista asked a ridiculous amount. So it was a really complex time. So I, I, I really, between you and I, I really recorded Black Cards because I wanted an ultra commercial record so that I can get out of that damn deal. <laughs> and and I did, and that, it, it worked. Me out. Yeah, it got me out of the deal, and it. It actually was a very big hit in Europe for me and, and really uh, propelled me uh, to great heights in, in Europe like all the other stuff never did, which kind of threw me for a loop. But um, that's, so it really worked for me. And plus, the biggest and best part about it is I had I received a great education in MIDI, in personal recording, whereas recording with a rhythm section and, or an orchestra that's a different kind of recording, more of a live recording. I got my first lesson in how to make a record all by yourself and, and really understanding the elements and then understanding MIDI and then understanding synthesizers in a different way than you did, you know, the new, uh, the new digital synthesizers. Uh, um, it was a whole new thing, you know, really a whole new, whole new way of approaching music. And it stuck with me. And I, I, I told my brother, I said, we had many, many discussions in those days. That someday we're going to be recording and everything will be in the computer. And it'll be perfect. Where you can have perfect access to any reverbs, echoes, tracks, instruments, and it'll sound great. The only thing that will be the limiting factor will be your brain. And um, we're just about there. Yeah. I remember hearing that record as a keyboard player thinking it had a very FM sound to it, very Yamaha influence, whether it was the drum machines you were using, not sure if you're using Yamaha drum machines or sequencers, but definitely had a, a Yamaha flavor to it, not an analog flavor uh, that was on Brother to Brother. No, no. It, it, I mean, you know, those, it was an ultra-commercial record, you know, uh, and, you know, obviously it was my biggest single uh, worldwide. It was like platinum single in Canada, and it was my biggest album worldwide. So, you know, I, I immediately started veering away from it uh, with, with um, Big Dreamers Never Sleep. And, but the record companies wanted sort of the same thing. And then that's why by the time the end of the 80s came around, I said, you know what, I, I don't want to do this pop thing anymore. 
it's just it's just uh, it's not not something that's in my heart. And I thought when I moved up to Portland, the first thing I did was I, I did I recorded Yonder Tree, and that's where my heart was really at. Hey, Gino, I want to ask a quick question, and it's a, sort of a, on the technical side. You know, you being a keyboardist and involved in early MIDI and that type of thing, did you ever immerse yourself into the programming and the algorithms or, you know, um, you know the, the analog programming or how distant? Yeah, I did, and uh, to my detriment. <laughs> and um, because, uh, you know, you lose the big picture. And you can't, an artist cannot lose the big picture. If I start getting into minutiae detail, yeah. It's like all of a sudden everything sounds right because you programmed it right, you know, and you 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 reinterpret or misinterpret success, whereas success should be you standing back and saying this works, but this doesn't work, mm-hmm. this is really you know moving me emotionally or not. So you have to I really learn the hard way to to keep the details to people who really are great at details and and sort of guide them as to what uh, what I want. Now some of the details. You know, I've gotten used to, like, I could sit here where I'm talking to you from in my studio and start demoing a, a bunch of things. I can get into some detail with a lot of programming, and trust me, I can get into incredible detail, especially with drum programming. But um, I prefer to, to kind of go, like, 70% with it and then mm-hmm. bring in Ryan um, or bring in Greg or whoever it may be that I work with. And... Um, sit with them and then have them say, well, you know, I, I would do this here, do that, and have them pick up the slack because it, it, detail is kind of a strange thing. It kind of boxes you into a closet. Yeah. And I, I kind of like to see the picture of the whole house instead of being in one room. You know, I was thinking about... Um some of the amazing musicians that have played on your albums, guys like, you know, Brad Cole and Daryl Sturmer yeah. and Jimmy Haslip, you know, we mentioned Mark Graney and, and Leon Gare. Uh, you know, these guys, um, were they suggested by the record company or did you have final say? No, were, were no, they... no, no. That was not with A&M. Okay. A&M okay. was always sort of like, you know, uh, as the crow flies or shoot from the hip or, yeah, yeah. you know, or, or kind of groove or ad lib or, and, you know, if you missed, you know, they shot you down and you were off, but, but they didn't, they didn't really mess with you. Mm-hmm. And if they did, They'd say something like, if Herb or Jerry would mess with you, they'd say, I'm going to mess with you now. And you could either listen to me or not. And so that was the great thing, you know. In fact, I I just, I I keep in contact with Herb, too, and we spoke over the phone just a little little while ago. Yeah. And um, it was a different era. I mean, Herb really trusted his own sensibility. And uh, he, he signed artists that he trusted, and... He would sort of be like where Clint Eastwood is with his directing. He would sort of say, look, I, I think you could do a little more or better, or maybe you've got something other, something other to say, you know. And so Herb's silence, you know, weighed very heavy when I would uh, show what I had. And unless he was elated, I knew he wasn't. And so uh, as the years went on, I knew how to read, you know, his 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 mastery of knowing how to read other people. And it was really helpful to me. It was a great lesson. Yeah. You know, collectively as a, as, you know, three brothers, you, Joe, and Ross, you know, how many instruments do you guys play together? I mean, drums, it's obvious, keyboards, guitar. I mean, what, uh, what's the breadth of your talents there? 
Well, he, you know, Joe's a good keyboardist, you know, and he programs really, really well. And Ross is a good guitarist, and uh, he plays some keyboards, but he's, you know, he's scored a lot. So, he, I mean, Ross knows how to put up something and make music. You know, with all his sounds, he's a, he's like a sort of a concept uh, artist. And, and as for me, you know, I I really know the piano pretty well, and I I know the I know the bass pretty well, pretty well. The guitar pretty well. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's like I'm just programming this one thing here. that has got guitar, bass, and drums. Hey, Gino, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, but uh, we do have that clip here, and this is a this is a sample of uh, a track from Gino's upcoming blues-based project that he was talking about here, and this is um, a track called Hell If It Don't Make You Happy, and, and Gino just passed along the uh, kind of the basis of the tune. Of course, this isn't mixed, this isn't finished, but uh, it's kind of an example of where he's headed, so uh, let's take a quick listen. That's a cool group, and uh, thanks for thanks for letting us uh, take a listen to that, Gino. Yeah, you know, what also goes on is, is you know. Anyway, so that's what I'm going to put on next. And so I, I got I got about. Uh, 15, 20 songs I'm going to lay down. and uh, Very cool. Yeah, and, and uh, this, this whole Healthy Don't Make You Happy is a song about gratitude. Last year, you released The Best and Beyond with the, uh, the remakes of some of your uh, great hits and uh, album tracks. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought about that, uh, that release? Well, we were, we were taking that... Um, uh, that, those arrangements live, you know, first, and and uh, the audience responded so well to it, and uh, I had such a good time performing those arrangements that um, we had offers to to record it. So I just said, why not? And and so I came up with the the album. The band played great, and um, I wrote um, the memoirs too, Stardust in the Sand. I was noticing the guitar solo on the new Brother to Brother. It's a, it's a great tribute to Carlos Rios's original, and we fans really appreciate that. And then the guitar player picked the perfect place to depart and make an equally memorable second half of his own. And I kind of want to know how, how you decided to craft that solo. Was that his decision, or you just wanted to keep part of that original solo in there? It, it's a conscious decision to, you know, when you have such a great uh, solo as Carlos Rios's, you, you need to tip your hat, you know, to it, and that's what we did. 
And then I, I, I told Alan at the time, uh, listen, Alan, I mean, you got the first eight bars in. I said, then the rest is yours. Yeah. Uh, and Venus Envy, to me, uh, it harkens back to some of your earlier material, and I'm, but uh, I had a question whether we might be able to expect a little more of that coming out, but um, it sounds like you're, you're taking a little bit of a, a diversion into the blues, so we'll look forward to hear that kind of stuff, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's blues and, and French impressionism in, in, in many of the songs. Uh, so there's some piano songs and some guitar-based songs, you know. Um, but I, I really want to combine blues and French impressionism and, and a little bit of, you know, of course, there's always a jazz element to it. Um, and I don't have thoughts that are, that are, that are, I don't know, out of the box thoughts. And, and um, I, to tell you the truth, I mean, it, it's hard to go back in the studio and re-record the same songs over and over and over again. I don't mean literally the same songs, but if you don't have a new concept or something you get excited about, it's really hard to spend six months, you know, uh, just slogging away at it. And when you have a, a, a new vision, something that is, you know, I could combine these two elements and create this, I think my voice will sound great on it, and I think the message will be clear, and it will be really entertaining at the same time. Yeah. And I, I, that's what I, what I want to do now. I started experimenting um, with a, a couple of keyboarders, uh, in Holland and actually doing a few of the songs that are going to be in this new album live and um, I was certain when I did it live that was the way to go well Gino we're, we're pretty much wrap, about ready to wrap up but before we do that I, I do have uh, a question to ask you and it's more about uh, you, you telling a story because it's we love the story about uh, your encounter with, uh, with Herb Alpert and how you literally ran out past the guard, and you know before heading back home to Montreal. Can you ex- tell us that story, please? That's that's pretty amazing uh, piece of information here. Well, you know, I, I I had been in Los Angeles for three or four months, and there was nothing doing. I mean, I, I nobody wanted to sign me, and uh, we had sent uh, a copy of my tape with Crazy Life on it uh, to A and M, and hadn't heard nothing. And I had one day left um, to, to live in L.A. I mean, I was literally out of money. I had five bucks left. The room was costing Joe and I five bucks a day. And um, so I, I just told my brother, I said, I don't want to go back without a record deal. as well because you're forced to because, you know, we're, we're out of money. We've been here for three and a half months. So uh, I woke up early that morning, and um, I, I needed a place to think. I, I went to a an Episcopalian church on Sunset Boulevard, and it was open. And I spent four hours just kind of getting into a twilight zone there. And I got up, I woke from, from the little trance after 10.30, it was about 10.30 or 11 o'clock. I had been there since 6 or 7 in the morning. And I went to the room, and Joe was still half-asleep, and I took my guitar. I said, come on. We just stood outside the gates of A&M. Of course, uh, the guard, you know, was a little um, upset that these two guys you know, looked like, you know, I don't know, Italian terrorists of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he kept coming down his tower and telling me, you know, you can't come in here. I said, I know that, but I said, I'm, I'm waiting for a friend, you know, wink. And um, so then I just saw, I saw Herb uh, uh, cut through the parking lot, through the gate, and I just 
ran, you know, for her. And the guard obviously started chasing me, but I had really a leg up on him. Literally, because he was a, a wounded uh, Vietnam vet and couldn't really <laughs> catch up with me very quickly. And uh, Herb was taken aback and a little afraid, spooked out, you know, because, um, you know, the, his wife had nearly been kidnapped a few weeks prior. And oh, so he right. thought that maybe it was a follow-up. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, he asked me what I wanted, and I just said, well, I just, you know, want to record. And by that time, the, the guard, John, had reached me and started tugging me away pretty violently. And um, his gun had been out, too, so I, I thought I could get shot in the back. You know, he had, he had unholstered his gun. So uh, Herb just asked him to wait a minute, just wait a second. And, and I said, look, Herb, I, I really want to play for you. I think you'll, you'll like what I show you. And Herb just paused, and he said, okay, come in half an hour. And uh, wow. he was really pissed off at me. Oh, God, was he pissed off. <laughs> the Vietnam vet, right? <laughs> Yeah, and and I I went uh, half an hour later. I I I went I went back to A and M and I brought my guitar. I was shaking, nervous, and I showed her songs like uh, "People Gotta Move" and "Powerful People" and a whole bunch of songs. I was already like, two albums deep, you know, or three albums deep. Mm-hmm. And um, he just looked at Jerry and said, "Okay, let's do it." Holy cow. And uh, I went home the next day with. Uh, on A&M Records, so it was pretty thrilling for me, especially in, in light of the fact that Herb personally wanted to be involved with this, uh, the production of the first album. And keeping in mind that you had a gun at your back. <laughs> well, you know, out of the ordinary, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, But um, I, I keep telling people, artists or people that come to me, you know, that, that they're looking for a break, and I said, well, whatever happened to me ain't going to happen to you. you got to find your moment. And, um, yeah. Everybody, everybody looks for their moment, you know, of, of a breakthrough moment. And it's, sometimes it's not with music, sometimes it's with your life, and maybe yeah. music follows after that. I don't know. Music business has changed so much in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, I, I'm still, I'm very happy with it because uh, people can, people still go out to see shows. Um, Downloading is fine and all that, it's just another medium. Um, people are a little bit, I not they're more shallow towards music than they've ever been, simply because there's just not enough time. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have a lot more to do. The games, mm-hmm. the computer, the, you know. In the 70s, people had nothing to do, but yeah. <laughs> as far as if you went to music, sit yep. down, read through the album lyrics, and listen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with the advent of, of the net and all, things have changed. Right. So it, it's, not, it's not quite as, as urgent you know, for people to have their new record or as it was 30 years ago. But it's still okay. It, it, artists can still make music, and as long as your expectations are, uh, I wouldn't say reasonable, but perfect. Your expectations have to be perfect or else it's too frustrating. You know, you had a very cool gig this past December, and it was on the world's largest cruise ship, Oasis of the Seas. And tell, me, tell us a little bit about that experience. It was an amazing experience uh, because they had sold the cabins to partic- my particular fans, and they had sold like 300 cabins uh, to people who came from all over the world to see, the, to see our band. And um, so we were a week on that ship, and um, we did three shows, and one show was a real unplugged acoustic show, 
a lot of just me and piano and um, the guys talking to the audience, talking about what it's like touring, you know, playing this music and all. So it really was a, a, a big thrill to do that, um, to that creative cruise. I mean, it, it was technically a little challenging because they don't have the latest and the greatest many times on mm-hmm, ship. Mm-hmm. But um, overall, uh, quite pleased. Hey, Gino, um, we're just about out of time, uh, but I wanted to ask before we go, I, you know, obviously the, uh, uh, you had the incident with the uh, in-ear monitor earlier this, yeah. this year, and I just was curious, is touring sort of uh, off the radar for the, for the remaining? Because I know you tour quite a bit. I just wanted to know if they... Oh, I know. I, I, I mean, I, I, I really miss it. I can't tell you how I want to be on stage so bad. I mean, uh-huh. singing, and it's cathartic for me, you know, uh, but I... Uh, I won't be going out till um, till June, and that's um, in Europe. I'm doing um, some, some dates. Uh, I'm doing uh, the Ukraine. Uh, I believe I'm doing it in Norway, two or three dates in Norway. Uh, we're doing a, few, a couple of dates in Italy. Um, a few more dates. It's about seven or eight dates. That's good. Yeah. I can't wait. And then we're going to be uh, picking up and uh, playing in the United States. Um, this year, later, later on, but it's been really well. It's a bummer, you know, that not to be able to, to yeah. go on stage uh, yeah. and, and play. But I've been writing a lot, so I pick up the slack with just writing quietly on my acoustic guitar and conceiving uh, composition. Well, very cool. Well, we uh, look forward to seeing you. I ho- hopefully, uh, when you tour the states, we'll be able to. Eddie and I might be able to catch you, uh, or maybe Scott down in Nashville. We can catch one of your shows. Well, we're we're we're, we're uh, trying to plan a, a Florida Florida date and some Georgia date. Well, very cool. Well, thanks so much for spending this time with us, uh, Gina. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure, guys. And uh, we wish you the best, and uh, hopefully your ears get back to one hundred percent. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Great. Well, very cool. Well, thanks again, Gino. Okay, guys. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Special thanks to Gino Vanelli for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.